We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Seats. Would you take just a moment to pray with me? Father, some of us, uh, we, we come into this room and uh, we, we sing these songs, we pray these prayers, and uh, we are filled with a sense of your nearness and your presence in our life. We're filled with a sense of belief. Others of us, we sing these songs and we pray these prayers and, and we remember a time where we once believed and we're just here trying to figure out if we could ever believe these things again. Some of us are in this room and we have never believed these things. Maybe we're even sitting in a Christian worship service for the very first time. We, we, we are all over the spiritual spectrum. We come from so many different places and backgrounds and yet we're more alike, Father, than we, than we even realize. We are, we, we are all, all of us in this room, more broken, more fractured, more of a mess, more in need of your grace than we even know. And yet if we can hear the news that you have for us in this passage this morning, we would come to see that we are more loved than we could ever know. And that's what we need. That is what every single person in this room needs this morning. We need to be able to see ourselves as you see us. And so would you break through our doubt and our unbelief Would you break through our skepticism? Would you break through our sorrow or our suffering or our boredom or wherever we find ourselves in life this morning? Would you come and would you speak to us? And would you do it in such a way that our lives would be changed? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, let me welcome you once again. Before we we jump into the sermon this morning, two just kind of quick announcements. Number one... uh, uh, You may have noticed we have an amazing piano player this morning. 
He, I taught him, actually. That's how he got really good. Um, actually, this is Aaron Keyes, and Aaron is uh, one of my, my best, best friends from college. So we go way back. It's kind of a long time ago. Uh, I picked him up at the airport yesterday, and I said, you look older. And he said, I am older. You know, this is a long time ago. Uh, but Aaron has been a worship leader in churches in Georgia and now in Colorado for, man, 25 years at least and uh, has written a ton of songs. We've, we've sung a number of them and just is so gifted. And so many of you know we're actually searching for a worship director right now. And uh, Aaron is not it. I, I wish he was, but he just moved to Colorado, so he's not moving his family again. But he's here uh, spending some time with me this weekend to kind of help us in our search for a new, a new worship director. So thank you for being here. Um, number two, and this is even more exciting, uh, is... God has provided a new pastor for our church. Another pastor. I'm not leaving. Another pastor. Here's some great news, everybody. Peace. I'm out of here. Have a nice life. No, uh, uh, we have, uh, you may not know this about our church. We're, we're a young church. We're only about three years old. And, um, and God has done a wondrous thing kind of in our midst over the last three years. And we've been looking and praying and searching for the last two years for, for another pastor. Uh, as our congregation has grown, uh, there's been a need to, to add someone else. Um, and uh, so Pastor Dave Lee, who uh, has been, uh, he started a church in Fremont about 12 years ago. So they're, they're local, they're gonna be moving to the area, they actually already moved. And uh, he's gonna be, his first Sunday will be August 8th. And he's going to be preaching, so you should come and meet him and welcome him and his family uh, and his wife, Susan. They've got three kids. Um, and I just, let me just say this. You're going to hear us talking a lot more in the weeks and months to come about what this means, but this is such a big deal for our church. You know, new churches, you're kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. And we've, God has kind of brought all these people into our community, and um, I think what, we, what we've the question we've been asking is, how do we help people grow as Christians? How do we help them become more like Christ? How do we help them just, how do we help people just take the next step, whatever the next, next step might be for you? You might be here and you're not a Christian, and you got a lot of questions, and you're saying, you know, I need, I need some things to kind of help me figure this out a little bit. You might be here, and you might be a longtime Christian, and saying, you know, there's, there's parts of the Bible I don't understand. I don't even know how to really read the Bible, how to study the Bible. Um, how, do, how do I think about what it means to be a Christian in my workplace? So these are things that I think we've tried to touch on, but we've just been lacking in staff and resources to really be able to get creative about um, how to help people take the next step. And that's a lot of what Dave is going to be focusing on kind of in his, in his job here. So really just, I feel like we should just clap for this. Um, all right, so this morning we are finishing up a series uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at the parables in Luke's Gospel I've said this if you're new to Christianity, uh, parable is just another word for story. And Jesus told a lot of stories. They were actually his main method of teaching. 75% of his words in the Gospels come in stories. 
And uh, we've looked at a number of stories, but this morning we're actually going to be looking at what I think are two of the most challenging stories that Jesus tells. They, they go together. It's why we printed them here for you. Jesus tells a story about a person who builds a tower and a king who goes to war, but he prefaces the story uh, by saying things like, hate your family, hate your own life, give up everything you have, carry your cross. Pretty, pretty light stuff, you know. This is hard stuff. And, you know, uh, I've never heard anyone say, you know, of all the stories that Jesus told, you know what my favorite one is? The one about that king. <laughs> and the one about that dude who built that tower. We, we gravitate to stories like, and we've looked at some of these, to stories like the prodigal son, to stories like the Good Samaritan, stories about God's love and his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. Uh, we love those stories, but we, we struggle with stories like this. And we struggle with parts of the Bible like this that seem confusing, uh, that can even seem to, uh, to be offensive. What do you do? What do you do with those parts of the Bible? Uh, Frederica Matthews Green, who she's an author and, and a well-known activist, she writes about her own experience with these parts of the Bible. And she said this, she said, um, almost 24 years ago, I walked into a church in Dublin as a Hindu, but I walked out a Christian. I had an unexpected confrontation with the presence of the one I discovered to be my Lord, and I was set reeling. I knew I needed operating instructions quickly. I particularly wanted to find out who this Jesus was. So I hunted up a Bible, a pocket-sized version with print several microns high, and plunged into the Gospel of Matthew. I disliked it from the start. Jesus was often abrupt and hard-edged. I disagreed with some of the things he said. I was offended, but something had happened in my heart. The confrontation in the church had knocked a hole in my ego. I knew that at least I didn't make the world. I didn't know everything, and it was time for me to sit down and to listen. So I kept working my way through the Gospels, and I love this, she said, and they began working their way through me. There are still parts of the Bible that I don't like, but I like the parts I don't like because, that's, because I know that's where I need to listen harder. We, we struggle to listen to parts of the Bible like this, but we, we need to listen. And I think Jesus knows that we struggle to listen. Do you notice that the, the very last verse in there, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. I mean, it's not like people were missing ears. What does Jesus mean? He's saying, you can hear what he's saying. You can audibly hear, just like you heard this text read this morning, but you can, you can fail to listen. And Jesus is saying, you need to listen. We, we, we need to listen, and here's why. Two times in this passage, in verse 26 and 27, Jesus uses the word disciple. And he says this, he says, here's what it means to follow me. It means to be a disciple. A disciple is simply another word for Christian, for a Christian. What, what is a Christian? Some of you are here this morning, and you are asking that question. You're exploring faith, trying to figure out if you can believe these things. What would it mean 
to be a Christian. Jesus says, here's what it means. It means to be a disciple. And we're going to unpack that, actually, in today's sermon. And for those of you who already consider yourselves Christians, you might be tempted to think, oh, so this is, this is a sermon for people who, who, who don't believe this stuff yet. You might be tempted to not listen. But before you go there, look at, look at verse 25. It says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. And you see, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. And here's what this is getting at. You can be around Jesus. You can be around other Christians. You can even be in church and not be a Christian, not be a disciple. We all need to hear this this morning, whether you're trying to figure out if you can believe these things, whether you've been a long-time Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Pretty, pretty basic message this morning, actually. What does it mean to be a disciple? We're going to look at three things. A Christian is someone who's considered the claim, number one. Number two, who's counted the cost. And number three, who's accepted the call. All right? Considered the claim, counted the cost, accepted the call. First, considered the claim. Let's, let's just get right to the part you're all wondering about. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate my parents. <laughs> hate my siblings. Some of you are like, um, okay, never really liked them that much anyways. <laughs> what in the world is Jesus talking about? I mean, isn't this the same Jesus who said that the world will know you by your love? Doesn't the Bible command us to honor our father and mother, to love our spouses, to love our children, to even love our enemies? And what about this whole thing about uh, hating your own life, hating your own self? I mean, doesn't the Bible say, love your neighbor as yourself? So what, here's the question, what could Jesus possibly mean by hate? And here's a little, just a little kind of quick lesson in Bible interpretation 101, is that Whenever you come to a part of the Bible that is hard to understand or that's confusing, you, you always seek to understand it in light of other parts of the Bible that are less hard to understand and less confusing. The golden rule of understanding the Bible is this, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't, we don't interpret Scripture. We don't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets itself. And let me show you what I mean by this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says this, Anyone who loves their father or mother, same thing, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is doing in this passage in Luke is he's not, he's not calling us to hate actively. He's, hauling, he's calling us to hate comparatively. He's saying, look, your love for me ought to be so great that all other loves look like hate in comparison. 
He's saying that, that he is to have the place of supreme love and affection in your life and in my life. And you see, the question is, how could Jesus say that? You know, who does Jesus think that he is? Who talks like that? Do you know that there is only one person in the Bible who talks like that and, and claims that you owe them that, that you owe them the place of supreme love and affection? We, we find it actually in the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's God's way of saying, you owe me your deepest worship and affection. And, and the New Testament actually affirms this when it says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. God is the only person, he is the only person in the Bible who says, love me more than you love anyone or anything else. And so who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's God. That's the claim. And I know some of you are like, wait a minute, I'm still stuck on this hate thing. Let me just, okay, listen, Jesus does not want you to hate yourself, okay? Some of you, you were stuck in cycles of self-loathing and self-harm and self-hatred. And God does not want you to hate yourself. You know why? Because God does not hate you. And God wants you to see yourself as he sees you. And God does not want you to hate your spouse or your family. He wants you to love them. And in fact, we could do a whole sermon on how loving Jesus the most enables you to love your spouse and your children more. But that's not the point. That is not the point this morning that this passage is making. The point is the claim. The claim that Jesus lays before you and me of who he is as God incarnate. And I want to ask you this morning, have you considered that claim? Have you considered it? Because many people come to Christianity and they say, I like the teachings of Jesus. All this stuff about love and, and forgiveness and caring for the poor. But they don't like the claims of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. All this stuff about him being God of the universe. And so what do you do? You end up accepting the teachings of Jesus, but you dismiss the claims of Jesus, and Jesus never lets you get away with that. He is always making this claim, always. Let me give you just two quick examples. In Luke chapter 10, just a couple uh, chapters before this one, Jesus claims to be the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He, he says this, he says to his disciples, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's, that is crazy talk. Jesus is saying, hey, uh, you know, back before the material universe was created, I was there. And, and, and I, saw, uh, I saw Lucifer go bad. I remember when it happened. Not pretty. I mean, who says that? Jesus says that. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus, here's the second example. He claims to be 
the only way to God, the only way, he says this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's actually on our stained glass up here. Some of you, you sit in here, you know, you come in and you don't see that part, the way, the truth, and life. You see Holy Bible, science, health. I know, I know what you see. And you say, why is that up there? And I say, I have no clue. I did not design this window when it was built in 1900 or whatever. You know, science and health? I'm, we're, we're pro-science and health. I'm not sure it's what I'd put on a stained glass window. But, but it's there. But anyways, Jesus says, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And modern people, we hear that and we think, especially in a place like Oakland, so diverse. We think, you know, Jesus, how about, how about a way? How about a truth? How about a life? You know, why you got to go and throw that definite article in there? And here's why. Because Jesus is saying, I am not, I am not one way among many. I'm claiming to be the only way. And and unlike every other religion, Jesus does not say, I've come to point you to the way. You know, obey these principles, follow this path. Jesus says, "I, I am the way. And you see, if you really, if you really consider this claim, you will not come to Jesus and just say, What a respectable person. Let let me see kind of what what helpful teachings I can kind of apply into my life from him. No, you know what you do? You do one of two things, actually. You come to him, and either that claim is false, and therefore you should reject him entirely. Or the claim is true, and the only right response is to throw yourself at his feet and to make him the ultimate object of your love and affection, which is what he's claiming in this passage. And you know what you see when you read the Gospels? You see people doing one of those two things. Responses to Jesus are never neutral. They either fall at his feet and worship him, or they want nothing to do with him, and they want to kill him. Christianity, friends, if you're, if you're new to this stuff, let me just say this very clearly. Christianity is not just sprinkling, sprinkling some religion or morals into your life. It is coming to grips with the radical claim of Jesus Christ to be the living God. Have you considered that claim? Have you, even more, have you embraced it? Have you embraced that claim? That is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's considered it, who's embraced it. Now here's the second thing. A Christian is someone who's counted the cost. I listened to a podcast this week that talked about how terrible human beings are at calculating risk. We're really bad at this. I don't know if you know this. We are very bad at calculating risk. For example, take flying versus driving. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many people in this room are more afraid to drive than you are to fly? Did you know that somebody raised their hand? Okay, somebody, I got got a couple hands raised. All right, that's fair, that's fair. Listen to this. I'm about to scare you about, about, I'm about to change your mind, okay? According to the National Safety Council, in 2019, 
the odds of, the, the odds of dying in a plane crash, they were, they were so low they couldn't even calculate them. You, you were more likely to be killed in a dog attack or being struck by lightning or a bee sting. This is, I looked this up this week. You're more likely to, be, to die from a bee sting than a plane crash. Do you know what the odds are of dying in a car wreck? One in 107. I mean, the odds of dying in a, in a car crash, they are far greater than in a plane. It is way more dangerous to, to, to drive than it is to fly, but that is not how we, that's not how we think. We think it's, we think it's less risky. We don't think, it's, we, we don't think it's more risky. We are not good at, at calculating risk and counting the cost. And that's why Jesus tells these two little parables. I mean, they're just so short and so to the point. The first parable is about a person who goes to build a tower. And Jesus says, the first thing you do, the first thing you do when you go to build a tower is you sit down and you estimate the cost to see whether or not you have enough money to finish it. Pretty simple point. And then the second story is about a king who's facing potential war. And Jesus says the very first thing you do if you're a king is you're going to figure out whether or not you've got enough warriors to win and what a battle would actually cost you. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, there's a cost. There's a cost. It'll cost you. And you say, well, what's, what's the cost? And Jesus says in verse 33, in the same way those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You say, everything? That's, that sounds kind of extreme. You know, surely Jesus doesn't mean everything. So I, I looked this up in the Greek this week. Do you know what the, the Greek word for everything is? Everything. <laughs> everything. Jesus, he doesn't say the cost to follow him is some things. He doesn't even say that it's most things. He says that it is everything. And you know, I'm sure that that's hard for many of us to swallow, but would you just consider this for just a moment? Any, any real relationship that you have that's of any real significance, it, it costs you something, right? Think about, think about your, your deepest closest relationships, your friendships. Or, you know, some of you, you're caring for elderly parents. That costs you. Your, your marriage costs you. Parenting costs you. Any true love relationship, it is costly, and it requires sacrifice, and a relationship with God is no different than any other relationship. The only thing that's different is that it's actually the ultimate relationship. And so where every other relationship, every other relationship that you have costs you something, a relationship with God costs you everything. And we hear that and we think, okay, well, what, so tell me practically what that means. Because most of us hear that and we go right to money and possessions. And there is no doubt that, that following Jesus has everything to do with your money and your possessions. We looked at this last week, that, that everything that we have is a gift from God. It belongs to Him. We think it belongs to us, but it belongs to Him. And He's given it to us to enjoy it and to be generous with it towards the poor 
and towards the church and towards the purposes of his kingdom in this world. But you see, following Jesus means much more than just surrendering your money to God. It means surrendering every part of your life to God. Every part, Jesus says, everything. So I said this at the beginning, this is a sermon for Christians as well as for those who aren't convinced of these things yet. So let me just, let's apply it for just a moment. Some of you, you are in dating relationships and God has been clear that he doesn't want you in these. And you're you're, you're willing to follow Jesus in other parts of your life, but not that part of your life. You say, no, I, I, I get to keep this to myself. You know, or some of us, probably all of us actually in this room, we are holding grudges. We are filled with bitterness and resentment. There are people in our life, and maybe even in this room, that we are refusing to forgive, and yet Jesus has been so clear. He has said, love those and forgive those who wrong you and who hurt you. Some of us, we are filled with worry and anxiety. We spend our days worrying about tomorrow. And you know what Jesus has said? Do not worry. Do not worry. Look at the birds of the air. See how your father cares for them? Look at the flowers of the field. See how he clothes them? Will God not care for you that much more? This this text, I mean, it is a challenge to all of us, including the one who is preaching. Because if we are honest, there are parts of our lives that we do not let Jesus touch. There are parts of our lives where we say, thy will be done, and there are parts of our lives where we say, my will be done. We are willing to give God some things, but not everything. And here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He is saying, the more that you understand who he is, the the, the more that you consider and you embrace this claim, the more that you begin to realize you cannot hold back parts of your life from him. You give him everything. And it'll cost you. And so here's just a question for you this morning is, how is Jesus, how is following Jesus costing you? Is it costing you? Because what Jesus is saying is that's actually the mark of someone who is truly following him. That is the mark of a Christian. It's the mark of a disciple. It is someone who has counted the cost. And it is someone who's considered the claim. And then here's the last thing. Some of you are like, man, this is, I need some good news. That's about to get worse for just a few minutes. So hang in there. Because here's the, here's the third thing. Jesus, it's, a Christian is someone who's accepted the call. Look, look at verse 34. Now, I love this. Jesus says, he tells these two stories. He's, he's saying, here's what it means if you want to be my disciple. And then he tells these two stories. And then he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And I just, it it almost sounds like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, how did he go from talking about all this other stuff to talking about salt? Because some of you are like, I don't really like all this other stuff, but salt's pretty good. You know, how do we get from this to salt? 
It, is, it, is, it, it sounds like there is no connection, but there is deep connection here. Uh, our English translation doesn't really capture it this morning, but it, it leaves out a, a pretty important word. It's a really small word in the Greek. It's three letters. It's the word un, and it means therefore. And so the text, the way it reads is this, therefore, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So these verses, you know, they, they, they don't seem to fit with the rest of everything that Jesus has been saying. But Jesus is saying, this, is, this has everything to do with what I've been saying. This has everything to do with what it means to follow me. It means to be salt. Do, do you know in the very first sermon that Jesus ever gave, Sermon on the Mount, he talked about salt. And he looked at his followers and he said, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? What did Jesus mean when he called his followers salt of the earth? Salt does two things. You know, if you, if you disperse it uh, into uncooked meat, it's a preservative. It prevents decay. And if you sprinkle it onto cooked meat, what does it do? It enhances the flavor. It brings out the best flavor possible. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what my people are supposed to be like in the world. They're supposed to be people who are preventing decay, who are pushing back the darkness. People who are working against evil and injustice and greed and oppression and death and suffering. And we are to be people who bring out the best, who, people who work for a more just society and a more generous society and a more peaceful society. Friends, if you, if you are a Christian, that is your calling in life. You are called to be salt. You're called to be a blessing to your neighbors and to your community and in your places of work and in your homes and in your city. And that calling actually goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12 where God called Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. And the question is, how do you do that? How do we bless others? How do we be salt? And the answer is, there are lots of answers to that question. But I think Jesus is getting at one particular answer in this passage. And he mentions it earlier in verse 27. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. To carry your cross, what does that mean? It means to live a life of self-sacrificial love. It means you become a servant. It means you take the low place. It means that you become others-centered. It means that no longer do you see yourself as the goal. Your life begins to revolve around other people. You know, when, when Mother Teresa first went to Calcutta, she faced a ton of resistance. There were no other Christians there. And initially, she, she was hated she was despised. Uh, crowds came against her in angry mobs, and they tried to kill her. But by the time that she died, she was the most loved person in that place. 
And the question is, how could, a, how could a Christian missionary, someone who went into this place with these claims about Jesus that were so different from the people living there, how could she go from being so hated to so loved? And the turning, here's where the turning point came for her. It was when the chief Hindu priest in her community got sick. And none of the local hospitals would take him in because he was, he was terminally ill and they wanted to save their beds for people who had a chance at living. But Mother Teresa took him in. And she and her co-workers loved him all the way until his death. And the whole community saw this. And that was when they came to embrace her and the God that she proclaimed. She was salt. She was a blessing. How? By becoming a servant. And you might be thinking, well, that's really inspiring, but I am no Mother Teresa. Okay. But you are a Christian. And this is what God calls you to be. Salt. A blessing. A servant. I mean, it is so, it is so countercultural. The world says... Look for other people to serve you. And Jesus says, no, you serve others. The world says, look to be blessed. And Jesus says, look to be a blessing. The world says, seek your good. And Jesus says, seek others' good. The world says, take the high place. And Jesus says, take the low place. And I'm just going to tell you this morning that that is a hard that is a lofty calling, but it is a hard calling. Because I don't know about you, but that is not the bent of my heart. You know, as Kanye West says, Kanye loves Kanye. <laughs> Brent loves Brent. And you love you. And what is going to get me and you to become these kinds of people? to live this kind of life of self-sacrificial love. People who become servants. Some of you are, are you're listening to this sermon today and you're thinking, I cannot do this. I cannot, I cannot love God more than I love anything else. Willing to give up everything Submitting to God's will and not my will in every area of my life? Becoming this kind of servant? I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I want to do it. I'm afraid of what it'll cost me. I'm afraid of what I will have to give up. And friends, if you hear me say nothing else today, I want you to hear this. Jesus asks nothing of you in this passage that he has not already done for you. And we see all of that right here at this table that we're about to come to in just a moment. The night that Jesus first shared this meal with his disciples. The night before his death, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, God in the flesh, he submitted his will, his own will, he submitted every part of his life 
to the Father in that prayer. And you know where that prayer led him? It led him to the cross where he became the ultimate servant. Jesus said it this way, I've not come to be served, but I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He took the lowest place on the cross and it came at the highest, the highest cost, the highest cost. It didn't just cost him his money. It didn't just cost him who he was dating or a relationship. It cost him his own life. He gave up everything. He gave up everything. He's calling you to give up everything for him. He gave up everything. Why did he do it? Here is the Christian gospel. He did it because he loved you more than he loved anything else. Isn't that amazing? God Jesus is calling you in this passage to let him have the place of supreme love and affection in your life. But you know what the Christian gospel says? That you have the supreme place of love and affection in his life. And that that is why he came and he lived and he died and he rose again. Jesus is not saying in this passage, if you follow me, if you do all of these things, then I'll go to the cross for you. Now, Jesus is saying, I am going to the cross for you. What he's saying to you this morning is, I have gone to the cross for you. Now follow me. And that is why God invites us to the table, this table, every single week. Because the more that we see him, the more you see him serving you, the more you'll be able to serve God and serve others. The more that you see that he gave up everything for you, the more you'll be able to give up everything for him. The the more that you see what it cost him to love you, the more you will be willing to follow him whatever it costs you. Friends, you will not be lacking in the end when you give your life to this God who gave his life for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what good news for us at this table. That that at this table and in your son, we find a God who says, you don't sacrifice to get me, but I sacrifice to get you. You don't give up everything to get me. I give up everything to have you. Would you help us to believe that this morning? as we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, help us to taste and to see this morning of all that you have done for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.